This week's podcast recommendation is Military Murders. Stay tuned to the end to hear a promo. Robert Durst became one of the most recognizable names in the true crime community when the docuseries The Jinx was released in 2015. The day before the final episode was released, Durst was arrested for murder. But this was far from the only crime he has been named a suspect in. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome back to Crimelines, to all of my listeners, and to anyone new listening, I'm glad you're here. Hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. I currently release five episodes a month, and I certainly wouldn't want you to miss any of them. And a big thank you to everyone who left a five-star review after my last episode, or really any time. And those of you who updated your old reviews so they would bump to the top. I've heard from a few of you that you didn't realize that I was getting some less than stellar reviews lately, and I'm glad I said something. I'm not the type to beg for reviews, but it really did help, so thank you. Today's episode may be a little different than what I usually cover on Crime Lines, since I don't usually go over well-known cases, unless they just happened, like Jennifer Dulos or J.J. and Tylee. What is there left to add to a case like, say, Maura Murray or Ted Bundy? But my researcher Haley pitched this idea to me to cover Robert Durst, but to some degree put him in the background and talk about all of the cases where he has been a suspect or person of interest, because it's probably more cases than you thought. It took Haley, Jess, and myself to get this one researched, and I want to thank them for all of their help. I likely would not have taken this on by myself. I did plan to line it up with the conclusion of Robert Durst's current trial, but then it was delayed due to COVID-19, and then it was delayed again and again and again, and I just didn't want to wait any longer. This will be a two-parter, because like most of my two-parters, it just grew bigger and bigger until I just frankly didn't have it done in time to record it as one really long episode. I'm almost done with it, but not completely, so part two will be next week. So let's jump into it. Just a quick overview of who Robert Durst is for anyone who isn't aware. He was born in 1943 to a wealthy family. He is the oldest child of Seymour and Bernice Durst. Seymour's father started the family's real estate business a century ago, and it made the family very rich. Today, the family's fortune is worth around $4 billion. When Robert was seven years old in 1950, his family lived in the wealthy New York suburb of Scarsdale. Bernice, Robert's mother, either fell or jumped from the roof of the family home and died of her injuries. She was just 32 years old, and she left behind four small children. Robert claimed in the docuseries The Jinx that he not only saw her fall, but his father had directed him to look out his window to see his mother on the roof, and he wondered why she was on the roof in her nightgown. Then he watched as she fell or jumped to her death. But his younger brother, Douglas, who is just a little bit younger than him, has publicly refuted this claim. He says that all four children were asleep when it happened, and they were woken up and then taken to a neighbor's house. Douglas said they were all together the entire time, and none of them saw anything. Robert was making this up, according to Douglas, for sympathy. 
Bernice's death was officially ruled an accident, though the family has accepted or at least acknowledged that it may have been a suicide. This isn't the only part of the jinx that Douglas disputes. Their father was portrayed as someone who threw himself into his work and left a series of nannies to raise his children. Seymour was just generally disinterested in these four little kids. Douglas says this is not true. Seymour was an attentive father, and Robert was revising history since he did have a tense relationship with Seymour later on. And the reason I'm bringing up these two instances in the jinx is because this is something we need to know about Robert Durst going forward. He is not a reliable narrator for anything. Much of his history is self-reported. Not only is he an admitted liar, which we'll get into, his perception is iffy due to his own mental health. Robert himself has claimed that he was on meth when he did at least one of the Jinx interviews. Now about his mental health. Three years after Robert Durst's mother died, when he was just 10 years old, he went to a psychiatrist. The psychiatric report stated that his mental health issues were severe, and he was diagnosed with personality decomposition and possibly schizophrenia. The personality decomposition basically meant that he did not have the usual defense mechanisms to stress, causing him to have personality disturbances. In short, he was 10 and had the signs of a severe personality disorder. It is not common to find this in children that young, and neither is schizophrenia. Whatever was happening here, Robert was presenting as very troubled. Many years later, as an older adult, Robert's lawyers would say he was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, which we'll get into a little bit more in part two. At school, Robert did fine. I think the word here would be unremarkable in any direction. He was a bit of a loner, but he did participate in some clubs. After he got his bachelor's degree in 1965 from Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, he enrolled in a doctoral program out at UCLA, and it was there that he met Susan Berman. Robert and Susan were a bit of an odd pairing of friends, with Susan being upbeat and bubbly to the point even her dearest friends would sometimes find her annoying. Robert was quiet and introverted. But they ended up forging a decades-long friendship that lasted even after Robert left UCLA without a degree and moved back to New York in 1969. Not a huge fan of the corporate world and path his father had laid out for him, Robert went to Vermont, where he ran a health food store called All the Good Things. In 1971, 28-year-old Robert met 19-year-old Kathy McCormick. She worked as a dental hygienist and lived in a building owned by the Durst family. They met one day when she was dropping off her rent check. A bit like his friendship with Susan Berman, this relationship seemed a bit of a mismatch. Kathy had grown up in a loving family who didn't have much, certainly not the wealth of the Dursts, but they were very close. Unlike Robert, who had all this money, but increasingly strained relationships with his own family. Kathy was also vibrant and lively, and people just loved her. She did not have the rough edges that Robert had, that's for sure. But Robert asked her out, and they fell for each other quickly, probably a little too quickly. He asked her to move to Vermont with him and help him run his store, after their second date, and Kathy agreed, she moved up there in January 1972. 
But the month before she moved to Vermont with him, we have the first disappearance that has somewhat recently been publicly linked to Robert Durst. 18-year-old Lynn Schultz grew up in Simsbury, Connecticut with her brother and two sisters. She was smart and friendly as a child. She was living in Vermont as a college student. She was attending Middlebury College. The setting was perfect for Lynn, who loved nature. She loved to hike. So Vermont was beautiful for her, but she was so close to her family, and this was her first time living away from them, so she felt rather homesick. She spent a lot of time writing letters back home, telling everybody about the things she did love to do in Vermont. She talked about her favorite stores in town, and that included all the Good Things health food store. Fortunately for Lynn, she did have two high school friends at college with her. She had other friends in nearby towns, so she wasn't completely without some connections to familiar people. But when the homesickness and school really overwhelmed her, Lynn would discuss dropping out and going back home to Connecticut. At one point, she made a comment about faking her own death and starting a new life somewhere. All the same, she enrolled four classes for the spring semester, so it did seem like she was planning to stay. On December 8th, 1971, Lynn talked to her mother on the phone, and the two were just excited. She would be home soon for winter break. She just had to get through the next few days of studying for her final exams, which were set to start on December 10th. The day of her first exam was the last day she has been seen. So let's go through the timeline of that day, December 10th, 1971. Around 7.45 in the morning, her roommate headed out and said Lynn was still sleeping. At 12.30, Lynn went to All the Good Things and bought some dried prunes. She was standing outside the store eating them when a friend from school passed by. Lynn made a comment about how she missed the bus to New York, which may have been a joke. She was about to take her first college final, and I could see joking about having tried to run off instead because there doesn't appear to be any other signs she intended to get on the bus. About 15 minutes after she was seen outside the health food store, Lynn was back on campus. She headed to her English drama exam with friends before realizing she forgot her favorite pen, and she headed back to her dorm room to get it. The exam started at 1 p.m., and Lynn never showed up for it. At 2.15, Lynn was seen by a fellow student standing across the street from the health food store. There was the bus stop in this basic area, but no one saw Lynn get on a bus. She was just seen standing there, and this is the last confirmed sighting of Lynn. It wouldn't be until December 12th, two days later, that someone reported Lynn's disappearance to campus security. Her family, though, wasn't contacted for four more days around the time Lynn was expected to go home for the holidays. Her family officially reported her missing to the police on December 16th, which was nearly a week after she was last seen. The police initially believed that Lynn had left on her own and she would come back on her own. The chief of police even said he thought this was a young lady who needed some time by herself and that she would get back in touch with people when she was good and ready. Almost all of Lynn's belongings were in her room, but the missing things did, in all fairness to the police chief, like she may have left on her own. Her backpack was gone, her checkbook, 
and probably about $30 in cash. In today's money, that would be around $180. Not a lot, but it would have been enough to get a bus ticket and maybe some food. That said, Lynn did leave behind her ID. But when you also add in some unconfirmed sightings and you can see why the police did believe she left on her own. But just because someone left voluntarily did not mean they were staying away voluntarily, and that's what the police ended up believing happened after about five or six weeks with no word from Lynn and no activity on her bank account. On the 24th of January, her missing persons report was broadcast, and this scenario played out over and over again until we finally have the rules we have now where if a young person is missing, even if you think they ran away, you still get their missing persons information out there as soon as possible. Because here we are five or six weeks down the road and they're only now letting people know to be on the lookout for Lynn. The case had very little movement aside from a few false confessions over the years. Then in 2012, an anonymous tip was called in saying to look into Robert Durst. At this point in the timeline of The Jinx, the docuseries on Robert Durst, it was being filmed for, but it was still a few years away from being aired. It does not appear that it was anyone from the crew that called in the tip, but who knows. And this is the first time Robert Durst's name came up in this investigation, 40 years later in 2012. Even though he operated the health food store, across from where Lynn was last seen, he had never been questioned. Likely because the police believed she ran off, no one bothered to ask potential witnesses about anything. It would be nice to know if Robert Durst was even in town that day, or was he working at the store, or did he see something? The lack of an early investigation leaves all of these things giant question marks. The property Robert had lived on in 1971 was subsequently searched in 2014, but nothing was found. Other than living in the area and owning that store, there doesn't appear to be anything connecting Robert to Lynn. But again, nobody was asking at the time, and it's a little hard to look back 40 years and find people who knew Lynn and Robert and any possible connection between them other than the store. It was the month after Lynn's disappearance, and right around the time her disappearance was made public, Kathy McCormick moved in with Robert, and they began running the store together. Though they both enjoyed Vermont, Robert was being pressured by his father, Seymour, to get back to New York and start working in the family business in all seriousness. As the oldest son and heir apparent to the family wealth, Seymour wanted Robert to understand the business and what he would one day be taking over. After returning to New York, Kathy and Robert married on April 12, 1973, which was Robert's 30th birthday. The wedding took place after Kathy signed a prenup, of course. Kathy was ambitious and hardworking, and she wanted to be able to support herself, even aside from her husband's wealth, so she went to nursing school in Connecticut, which she finished in 1978. She then moved on to medical school, going to the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. 
It was during the time Kathy was in nursing school that the marriage began to show some cracks. Robert seemingly wanted a housewife, and his reaction to Kathy's independent career path was to become more controlling. He controlled money tightly, almost as though they didn't have enough of it when they actually had more than they needed. In 1976, Kathy became pregnant, and though she wanted children, Robert didn't. At his insistence, Kathy terminated the pregnancy. Robert would claim that the baby might not have even been his anyway, though there is no evidence that Kathy was cheating on him in 1976. In fact, at this point, she seemed like she really loved him and wanted to save the marriage because it was under the threat of divorce that she had the abortion. This situation really changed Kathy and the way she felt about her husband. The strain grew when Kathy went on to medical school and was about to have a career that would leave her completely financially independent from Robert. Robert would lord it over her a bit, threatening to cut off her tuition at times, and the emotional and verbal abuse and manipulation by Robert eventually escalated to physical abuse in the early 1980s. By 1982, Kathy was done. She had already been seeing a divorce attorney, and she was in her last semester of medical school. She knew that the prenup she signed with Robert was not going to help her very much, and she was preparing to fight it a little bit. Her lawyer told her she just needed to gather as much information as she could so that he could go over it to see if there was a chance she could walk away with a little bit more than the prenup had laid out. Kathy confided in her friends what was going on and even the physical abuse. They urged her to leave immediately, forget the prenup, forget the money. She could figure all of that out later. They even offered for her to move in with them so that she could finish school without Robert's help. But Kathy insisted she needed to hang in a little bit longer. She had it under control. One friend told her that she should at the very least start going to the hospital and documenting it if Robert puts his hands on her and leaves marks. So that's what she did on January 6, 1982. Kathy had bruises on her face and her head. Marks Robert would, predictably, claim she inflicted herself. While she wanted the medical documentation, Kathy did not want to press charges, and back in 1982, that was pretty standard to not pursue a domestic assault case if the victim didn't want them to. About three weeks after this incident, Robert and Kathy spent the week at Truesdale Lake, which is on the New York side of the New York-Connecticut border, up near Ridgefield. They owned a cottage there, and Kathy had mostly lived at the cottage while she was in nursing school in Danbury, Connecticut, since it was much closer than New York City. But of course, while in medical school in the Bronx, she stayed in the city most of the time. This weekend, though, Robert insisted she go to the cottage with him. On January 31st, which was a Sunday, Kathy went to her friend Gilberta's house. She told Gilberta that she and Robert had been fighting, and she just needed to get away from him for a while. Gilberta was having a dinner party and told Kathy she was welcome to come over, even though she hadn't initially planned for her to be there. When Kathy showed up, even knowing that there was going to be a party that evening, she was very underdressed, which was not like her. She was just wearing sweats, and Gilberta could tell she was very upset. The phone at Gilberta's rang a few times that day, with Robert calling to talk to Kathy. Around 7 p.m., Robert called again, and Kathy talked to him for a little bit. 
After she hung up, she told Gilberta that Robert seemed pretty upset, so she was going to head home. Then she said if anything happened to her, Gilberta had to promise she would check it out. She was afraid of what Bobby would do. This statement would be alarming to anyone, and it was, but we have to know that this was not the first time Kathy had said something like this. As Robert became more violent and controlling, as Kathy became more independent, she would remind her friends that if something were to happen to her, that it was murder and it was Robert. Because she had said this a few times before, it's not like Gilberta blocked the door begging Kathy not to go. Gilberta said Kathy left between 7 and 7.15, so not long after that phone call at all. That means she would have made it back to the cottage between 8.15 and 8.30, probably closer to the later time, because the weather was pretty icky out. It was cold and sleeting, so Kathy would have driven more slowly. Kathy had to be back in class the next day, so she intended to take the train back to New York City that night. She was also meeting with Gilberta in Greenwich Village for dinner in the evening, which was a good thing since she had accidentally left her notebook at Gilberta's when she left so abruptly after Robert's call. Gilberta figured, I'll just give it back to her when I see her. After Kathy left her friend's house, we only have Robert Durst's version of what happened. And according to him, after Kathy got back home, they ate while Kathy drank an entire bottle of wine and the two argued. He then drove Kathy to the train station so she could catch the 9.15 train back to the city. He said he saw her get on the train. The drive to the train station was about 20 minutes from the cottage, so they definitely would have left before 9 to get there in time, given the road conditions. So Kathy was in the cottage for maybe 30 minutes, in which time she apparently packed her things, ate, and I guess chugged a bottle of wine. This is, of course, according to Robert. The next day, February 1st, Kathy, or someone claiming to be her, called in sick to school, saying she had some sort of stomach ailment. She also did not show up for dinner with Gilberta as planned. Towards the end of that week, the dean at the college called Robert because Kathy had not been in class all week. And they were concerned since they knew she was sick on Monday. Robert told them he hadn't heard from Kathy either, so he went to the police to report her missing. At this point, we are at February 5th, though some reports say this happened on the 4th. Regardless, it was four or five days since Robert had last seen or heard from his wife, and it struck the detective as odd that a husband simply hadn't noticed his wife was missing all week. But Robert explained that he didn't realize she was missing because they had argued when he last saw her, and it wasn't uncommon for them to go days without speaking. He had stayed at the cottage while she was in the city, and even when he got back to the city, he knew Kathy would sometimes sleep at the hospital if she was really busy. It wasn't until he got the call from the school that he realized she hadn't been there either. But Robert knew Kathy made it back to Manhattan safely because he talked to her that night. He told the detective that the night Kathy left, he had a drink with his neighbor, and then he called her from the cottage. She was in bed watching TV when they talked. This call did not show up on his phone records and Robert corrected himself. He actually didn't call from the cottage. He was out walking his dog, and he stopped at a payphone to call her. But in checking for the nearest payphone, it was discovered to be 
three miles away. Robert was athletic, but who takes a six-mile round-trip walk late at night in the middle of a sleet storm? Robert told Kathy's family a third story. The call to Kathy was made from a restaurant. So the call seems suspect, but even the drink with the neighbor comes into question because the neighbor said he didn't remember having a drink with Robert. But he did remember seeing a light from the crawl space of the cottage being on that night when it normally wasn't. But we don't really have to speculate about this phone call because Robert admitted that this was all a lie. It was decades later, when he was being interviewed for the Jinx, that he made this admission. He said he had nothing to do with Kathy's disappearance, but he wanted detectives to believe she went missing from New York City while he had an alibi elsewhere. At the time Kathy disappeared, though, the police had Robert's claims that she made it back to the city, and then at least two people in the apartment building confirmed that they saw Kathy there. Years later, it comes out that these sightings were not as solid as initially thought. One person admitted that he had only seen her from the back, and it really could have been someone else. But because of these sightings and because Robert was believed, the police were looking in New York City for Kathy. No one searched the cottage at the lake or anywhere in that area, even though it seems in hindsight they should have checked all avenues. Robert played the role of the sad, worried husband even as police said that they thought it was possible Kathy had run off of her own volition, Robert said she would not have done that. She only had a few months left of school. She was out of contact with all of her friends, all of her support system. He did not believe she left willingly. He even offered a reward for information on her whereabouts. Kathy's friends largely didn't buy the police version of her running away or Robert's version of something else happening to her. They 100% suspected Robert from the minute they heard she was missing. Two of Kathy's friends pretty much investigated the case themselves, keeping their own files at home with anything they could find out. Kathy's friend Gilberta even broke into the cottage with her sister at one point, shortly after Kathy went missing. They saw that Kathy's mail had been thrown away unopened. They found the clothes Robert said Kathy was last wearing hanging in her closet. From inside the house that she and her sister had just broken into, Gilberta called the police. She pretty much turned herself in for the break-in to get them to the house and to tell them what she saw there, but they never sent an officer out. They actually have someone calling saying, I just broke into a house and no one showed up. Gilberta ended up leaving because she saw some trash bags that were stuffed in the closet. She got spooked and she left. But she did keep tabs on the case over the years. She even hired psychics in the hopes something would come from it. Eventually, both Gilberta and the other friend looking into the case experienced home robberies. And in both of these robberies, all of their files and documents on Kathy's case were stolen. Robert only spoke publicly once or twice early on about Kathy's disappearance, and then he reached out to his old UCLA friend, Susan Berman, to act as a spokesperson for him in regards to the case. He said he was just too overwhelmed to handle it. In the meantime, Robert was clearing out Kathy's belongings, and he put their apartment up for rent shortly after she disappeared. 
not much happened in the case for another eight years until 1990, when Robert formally divorced Kathy on the grounds of abandonment, and he sold the cottage. The divorce was kept quiet, with Kathy's family not learning of it for 10 or 11 years. Robert then moved into an Upper East Side luxury apartment with a woman he had been dating for a few years, Deborah Sheridan. They lived together for about nine months when Robert moved out. It's not clear the state of their relationship over the years because Robert would visit her and they would spend time together, but they never lived together full time again. Then, between 1992 and 1994, the final nail in the coffin for Robert's relationship with his family was nailed in. Seymour Durst retired, and he overlooked his oldest son. He made younger brother Douglas the head of the family business. Robert resented this, and he cut ties with his family. Emotionally, that is, he still took the $2 million a year payout from the family trust. So basically, no awkward Thanksgivings and $2 million a year just handed to him for existing. Robert easily lived off this money, but he remained fairly transient. He'd pop into New York and stay with Deborah for a bit, and then he'd leave again. They stayed in close contact even when Deborah began a relationship with Stephen Holm, one of Robert's real estate lawyers. Deborah and Stephen's relationship wasn't hidden. They were publicly together to the point that most people thought they were married. So it is possible that Robert and Deborah's relationship became platonic at some point. In 1997, Robert found himself living out in California, and it was in November 1997 that Karen Mitchell went missing from Eureka, California, and this is our next case connected to Robert Durst. Karen was born in November 1980, so she was just about to turn 17 when she went missing. She grew up in the L.A. area with her mom, Mary, and her older brother, James. Her parents were young when Karen and James were born and split up pretty early on. So we have Mary juggling raising teens on her own. When Karen began some teenage acting out, Mary was working long hours to make ends meet, so things were really piling up. The family decided together that it would be good for Karen to move in with her aunt and uncle, Annie and Bill, who could give her the guiding hand she needed. Their own sons were nearly grown, and they lived in a more rural area out in Eureka, and that appealed to Karen. She was politically minded towards saving the environment, and she didn't really feel like she fit in where she lived with her mom anyway. Karen settled in well. She was doing great in high school. She had a friend group, but she was hoping to actually finish high school early so she could enroll in Humboldt State University to study political science and maybe even prepare for law school. In her spare time, she worked at a daycare after school. On Tuesday, November 25th, 1997, Karen talked to her mom on the phone in the morning. They just talked about her college plans, financial aid options for paying for it, that sort of stuff. Karen did not have school that day due to Thanksgiving break, but she did still have her usual shift at the daycare from 3 to 6. Karen drove with her aunt Annie into town. Annie drove her as far as the shoe store that she owned, where Karen hung out for a bit until it was time for her to head to work. It was roughly a mile, so it wasn't a really bad walk. Annie said Karen left around 2.45 to get there by 3, and she was heading north towards the daycare when she last saw her. 
At 6 p.m., the daycare was closing, and Annie showed up to pick up Karen. When she got there, they told her Karen actually had never shown up to her shift. So Annie called Mary to see if she knew where Karen was, and of course she didn't. So Annie then called the police to report her missing. Mary and Karen's older brother James dropped everything and drove out to Eureka to be closer to the investigation and the searches. A witness came forward saying that he saw someone who looked like Karen get into a mid-70s model light blue sedan. It's been said to have been a Ford Granada or a Mercury Monarch or some similar boxy compact car style. The girl getting into the car didn't seem, according to the witness, to have been voluntarily getting into the car. There was some force involved, but whatever it was was not enough for this witness to suspect this was a kidnapping and to notify the police. What did happen that alarmed the witness more is that the driver of the car then pulled out across the road really carelessly and almost hit the witness. Because of this, the witness got a better look at what was going on. The driver was described as having a small build, gray or sandy blonde hair with green or gray eyes, a prominent nose that looked like it may have been broken in the past, and the man looked to be 60 to 70 years old. Sketches of the man and the car were made and circulated. Because of Karen's free spiritness, the idea she left on her own couldn't entirely be ruled out, but it didn't seem likely. Christmas came and went without Karen using the plane ticket she already had to fly home. Her bank account was never touched. The police searched the area, they brought in dogs to aid in the search, but this was a difficult area to search. There are a lot of rural areas, there are some areas of rough terrain, but even more so, this is a place where people keep to themselves. They're not that interested in talking to the police, they're not so interested in having their property searched, and this just made it difficult. Karen really could have been anywhere. A hotline was set up and leads were followed, but nothing pointed investigators in the right direction. Then let's fast forward one year to November 1998, and serial killer Wayne Adam Ford was arrested. You may not recognize his name, but you might recognize his story. He's the guy who walked into the sheriff's department with a woman's breast in his pocket and turned himself in. Ford confessed to killing four women, all transient sex workers. Of course, he was questioned about other cases in the area, including Karen's disappearance, and he denied involvement. He did not match the man the witness saw at all. He had medium to dark brown hair, and he certainly didn't look 60 or 70. He was in his mid-30s. But it was never confirmed that the man in the boxy, compact car was for sure connected to the disappearance. It was just one lead. So they went ahead and polygraphed Ford anyway, and he denied involvement in Karen's disappearance, and he passed. Even though he was questioned, we know he was in the area, I don't know that he was really considered that much of a solid suspect anyway, since his preferred victims were the people who wouldn't be noticed missing right away since they didn't have strong connections to the area. Also, Ford turned himself in because he was feeling some sort of remorse over what he did. He didn't have a lot to gain or lose at this point by lying, though I will say authorities do think he killed more than the four women he confessed to killing. I don't know what they base that on, though. 
Regardless of investigators not thinking he had anything to do with Karen's disappearance, her mother Mary decided she needed to know for herself. She went to the jail to see Ford and showed him a picture of Karen. Ford said something like, she looks like she could be one of mine, and then he offered more information if Mary would stay in touch with him. I call this his Henry Lee Lucas moment. No, this was not a milkshake in exchange for a false confession, but the promise of someone to correspond with after he had been sitting in jail bored for a while was pretty close to that. Mary saw through this and she just moved on. She does not believe he was involved at all. In 2001, Mary went on national TV to talk about Karen's disappearance, and a tip came from this appearance. A girl who matched Karen was seen in Tempe, Arizona. Mary and James went down there and showed Karen's photograph, and people said, yes, we saw her. She's in the area. One day while Mary was still in Arizona, the manager of the motel she was staying at called her. A girl had come in and looked just like the photograph of Karen. They said they called the police. So Mary and James hurried back to the motel, and they waited in the parking lot while the police knocked on the motel room door. When the girl opened the door and took a step out, Mary could tell this wasn't Karen. The resemblance was there. And she could see why the tip was called in based on the photograph, but it still wasn't Karen. This girl felt so badly for the whole thing. I mean, obviously, it's not her fault she looked like a missing person, but she just felt terrible. She apologized to Mary. She hugged her. But this lead, this very solid lead, had gone nowhere. In 2004, police did a new set of interviews. They searched a very specific area with cadaver dogs. They searched a house. It's not clear if they had a specific tip that led them to this area, but the search, the new interviews, they didn't bring any answers. So how does Robert Durst come into this? Half of you probably forgot that's what we're even talking about at this point. In 2015, around the time the jinx came out, Matt Birkbeck published his book on Robert Durst called A Deadly Secret. You may recognize Birkbeck's name from my Franklin Delano Floyd episode because he wrote two books on that case. In the Durst book, he points out that Robert lived in Trinidad, California at the time, which is about an hour from Eureka. He said that Robert Durst hung out around a homeless shelter that Karen volunteered at and that credit card receipts put Robert Durst in Eureka on the day Karen disappeared. He also notes there is a resemblance to the person seen by the witness, though personally I'm not 100% on this. I know I've said it before, I'm not really great at matching a drawing of someone to them, so don't take what I have to say as gospel truth, but the man was estimated to be 60 to 70 years old, and Robert Durst was in his 50s. And based on other photographs I've seen of him, he wasn't looking particularly old for his age. But I guess it also depends how old the witness was, because a 16-year-old is going to think a 50-year-old looks like he's 70. So I can kind of see that. But They mentioned he had a prominent nose that looked like it may have been broken, and I don't see Robert's nose being that large. I may just be missing it. Of course, this is all circumstantial to the nth degree, but the police thought it was worth looking into. Karen's family is just happy that the attention brought more interest in her case, so maybe they'll eventually get answers even if Robert Durst is not the answer. It was about three years after Karen's disappearance at some point in 2000 that Robert sold his home in Trinidad, and the next we know, he was in New York. 
It was right around the same time that investigators in New York were reopening Kathy Durst's missing persons case. At that point, an 18-year-old cold case. The tip came from someone who had been arrested for unrelated crimes, and this was kind of a game of telephone. This man had heard about things connecting Robert Durst to Kathy's disappearance. However, it seems like he was just using this for leverage because when the police looked into his specific story, it just didn't add up. But what it did do was get authorities interested in taking a new look at the case, and a full reinvestigation started in 2000. This new investigation became what authorities say was the reason for the next two murders linked to Robert Durst. That is what we are going to talk about next week. Personally, I hate to do this to you guys. I don't like two-parters myself. I tend to save them until the next part comes out so I can listen all in one go. But like I said, I'm just not finished in time. So next week, we are going to talk about Morris Black. We are going to talk about Susan Berman. And we're going to talk about how they possibly link back to the disappearance of Kathy Durst. Hi, True Crime Recruits. I am Margot, host of Military Murder, a show where I have combined my love for the military and my love for true crime to bring you military true crime cases. It's like true crime, but instead of crimes committed by Joe Schmo, the cases I cover are committed by private Joe Schmo or veteran Joe Schmo. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. On the show, I've covered the gruesome 1993 love triangle that led to a soldier's decapitation, the infamous 2007 case of an astronaut who drove cross-country allegedly in a diaper to confront her romantic rival, and most recently, I covered serial killer BTK, who is an Air Force veteran. I hope that you'll join me and my true crime army every Monday as I navigate these military true crimes. You can find Military Murder everywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Now go on, go subscribe and listen right now.